Well, let's take our Bibles this morning again and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And again, we would say that the book of the, the word that we would attach to this book is the word model. They are called to model the gospel, to be models, to be uh, those whose lives would demonstrate their salvation in such a way that others could follow. And so we would use that word model for the book of 1 Thessalonians. So we are starting in the beginning of chapter 2. We, be, we, we turn a page here and we will be starting a section between verses 1 to 12. Verses 1 to 12 as Paul <clears throat> moves along. Now, our text this morning is only going to be verses 1 to 4, but I'm going to read all those verses this morning. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid, amid much opposition. For exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as, nursing, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had not, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working day and night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's go to prayer before we... Go to our text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your many blessings and goodness to us. And again, we thank you for your word. And I pray that as we go through this text this morning, that you would again open our eyes to the truths that are there, that you would again use your word in our hearts as you see fit, whether that's to convict, to break down, to correct, to build up. And so I pray this morning that your spirit would teach us and that we would again hear your voice through the word of God and that we would be changed more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So as we've been going through First Thessalonians, we have been 
we, we started through this book and we saw through chapter one, we saw the greeting in verse one as he greets the, the people who he is writing to, get, uh, giving us the understanding of who the author is, who the audience is, and what his intent for the book is, grace to you and peace. And so as we read this book, that's certainly his intent for us to understand God's grace in a deeper way and to have his peace in a deeper way. And then as he works through verses 2 to 10, he, he starts to give us distinguishing marks of, of God's work of grace in people's lives. And so he's, there's a thanksgiving here, but it, the thanksgiving is not specifically for the Thessalonians, but for God's work in the Thessalonians' lives. And so we saw some distinguishing marks of God's work in their lives as we went through verses 2 to 10. And so we could see what a genuine work of grace looks like in people's lives. But now as we come to chapter 2, we really start into the, into the book, we would say, into the issues that he wants to address. And we said before that there was issues in the introduction and thanksgiving that would be addressed later. And here he begins to address some of those issues. And so the focus now goes away from the thanksgiving for the Thessalonians and God's work in their life to Paul and the ministry of, the, of Paul's companions as they came to Thessalonica. Now, <clears throat> we want to remember that as we, as we come to this section here, that this book was written shortly after Timothy came back from Thessalonica. Right after he came back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, it says, For this reason, when I could, could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might tempt you and our labor would be in vain. <clears throat> but now that Timothy has come from us and has brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason... Brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And so Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians. He had sent Timothy to get a report because of the, the church was, uh, was, we would say, born in persecution and trouble. And so Paul is worried that they might be, because of the persecution, that they might not be standing. And so it's clear that, as he said earlier, that they, were, that they gave the gospel amid much tribulation and that there was much tribulation that was taking place uh, in, when they received the gospel. So it's clear that what Paul is concerned, that there's a concern here that Paul is being opposed in his ministry that there are those who are out to get Paul, that there are those who are <clears throat> trying to undermine his ministry. In fact, he was, as, as Paul was there in, in the church and as he was uh, being opposed and as they received in much tribulation, Paul was forced to flee from the city in Acts chapter 17, he is forced to flee. He's forced, he forced, he's forced to go because they've come after him. In fact, we saw as we read this morning that they were specifically after Paul and his companions. They wanted to get them out of the city. They were the troublemakers who were stirring up the city. 
But it's clear that after Paul left and he, and he moved on to Berea, that the trouble followed him. In other words, these people continued to, to, to come after him and force him to flee again. And so it is, it is clear that there is, there is opposition specifically to Paul because they are coming after Paul. He's the lead teacher and they want to undermine him and they want to cause him difficulty. And they continue to stir up, we would say, opposition to the apostle in the hearts of others. And so there is this, this idea that comes through to us that Paul is, is under is under persecution and that they are specifically coming after him and there's opposition to him. But what is also starts to become clear as we look at this and as we look at the text and we will, we'll get there, is that they are, they are persecuting and they are coming after Paul, this opposition that is coming after him is specifically targeted at him as a philosopher. In other words, they, they are coming after him and comparing him to Greek philosophers is what they are doing. Now, we often think that Paul was the only guy going around city to city giving his, the gospel and trying to convince people of, of what he believed, but Paul wasn't. He was one of many. There were many, time, many philosophers in the Greek, in 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 Rome at that time that would go around from city to city trying to give their philosophies primarily to make money, to get influence, to fulfill the, the lusts of their flesh. They often went there and fleeced the flock. And so oftentimes they would come and before they went to a city, they would send heralds in, they would put up the flyers as we would see. You see, you know, coming soon to the arena near you and there would be the group that's coming. And so they would, they would set this up so that people knew that they were coming. And oftentimes, as we said last time, people would actually come out to greet them in anticipation of hearing this great wisdom and philosophy and oratory. And so it's clear that as they start to make accusations against Paul and as we start to see his defense, that he is defending against an attack that is coming against him that is accusing him of not being a good philosopher. In fact, he's a bad one is what they're saying. He said he's not much. And so as we look at what the philosophers did when they came, they often came to a city. They, they popped in for a while. They got some money. They, they, often got some, they often got some influence. They often influenced ladies. They were known as those who were immoral. And so they would, under the guise of a deeper religious experience, be involved in immorality. And then they would leave. And then they would be gone. So we can see that as, as those who oppose Paul, that they, as they looked at him, they would say, well, wait a minute, there's some similarities here between Paul and the rest and these other philosophers. Number one, Paul received money at least twice from the church of Philippi while he was there. He's still milking that other church while he's here, right? He's still getting money. <clears throat> Paul also... Con converted among those in the, in the Thessalonica's were, wait for it, wealthy women. And we know what false teachers do. 
We know they're involved in immorality. They encourage it. They influence women. They take them under their spell. They promise them a deep religious experience. And, and if they're wealthy, that's just even better because now we've got money to go along with it. And so they would point and say, hey, look at Paul. He's, he's, got, he's converted the women. After all, and even Jason, he was rich enough to host the missionaries. It's not like he went to the poor, right? He ended up in Jason's house. And then Paul left Thessalonica, abruptly leaving the church orphaned. Right? He just took off. He hadn't returned. He didn't come back to Thessalonica. And in fact, prior to this letter, he's never even written them. And so it could be easy for the opponents of Paul to start saying, look, this smells like something. This smells like he's another philosopher. Except, guess what? We don't even think he's a good philosopher. And we'll see that as we go through our text this morning. That Paul here is under attack. And he is now going to have to defend himself. Not because Paul wants to defend himself. Or because Paul thinks it's something that he would like to do. But rather his fear is that the Thessalonians will start to hear these criticisms. And will start to believe them. And so he puts up this defense as it were. Of the ministry that he had among them so that they will not believe these lies that are being told about him. Now, it's interesting because in this passage, you'll notice that he says over and over again, well, three times, you know, you yourselves know, right? You yourself, you recall, brethren. Verse 5, you, uh, you know. Verse 11, just as you know. There's these calls all the way through this text as he calls on them to remember what they already know. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is not not new. It's self-evident. You should already know this. This is something that, that is in your memory. I was just there six months ago. You haven't forgotten it. It is self-evident. You know it. You're aware of it. I'm not having to, as it were, dredge up stuff that you've forgotten. This is self-evident to you. And so as he begins to go through this section, verses 1 to 12, then we would say that he starts to give us distinguishing marks of a faithful shepherd. He gives us distinguishing marks of a faithful shepherd. And so as he gives his defense, he also gives us these distinguishing marks of a faithful shepherd, what he should look like. Now, for some of you, you just checked out. You're just like, I, I don't have to listen then. I'm no, I have no intention of ever being a pastor. In fact, I'm a woman. I can't be a pastor. Whew, right? So I don't have to listen to this. But I would say that if, if, if our leaders are to be examples to us, and then he calls us to follow, and we're called, as Paul did, for us to follow his example then this is for every single believer who wants to proclaim the word of God, who, you, who communicates the word of God, that it is for you. You must, you must then have these same marks on you. These should be evident in your life, no matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you teach Sunday school. It doesn't matter if you're teaching your children. It doesn't matter if you're an elder, a deacon. It doesn't matter what your ministry is. If you open your mouth to spread the gospel or the word of God, these marks should mark you as well. So nobody gets off the hook this morning. 
And so this morning, as we, we're, gonna, we're just going to go through verses 1 to 4. We're going to f- see two marks of a f- faithful shepherd. Two marks of a faithful shepherd. Number one, we will see that he is bold in proclaiming the word no matter the cost. He is bold in proclaiming the word no matter the cost. Secondly, we will see that he has godly motives in proclamation. Godly motives in proclamation. So, as Paul begins, and as he, we would say this is an apologetic. He's making an apologetic for his ministry in his time in Thessalonica. And what we're going to see over is, is this, there's this pattern of, 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 of something that he denies and then something that he affirms. Something he denies, something that he affirms. And we're going to see this pattern in these next few verses. So he says for, he begins this chapter two with the word for, for you yourselves know, all right? He says, you know what, he says in verse, linking back to verse nine, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you. He says, for you know, in other words, you know what our coming was like. You know what experience it was. And and really the word coming here could be entrance. You know our entrance to you. You know that our coming to you was not in vain. Right? So he says, when we entered, when we came to you, when we first entered and and we spent time with you, like, like we would say, there's only one time to give a first impression, and you know what we were like when we came to you, when we, that first impression that we made. He said, when we came to you, our, our entrance to you didn't lack substance. The idea of vain, we didn't come to you in vain, it didn't lack substance. In other words, when we came to you, and you know this, and he, again, he calls them brethren as he, as he again affectionately uh, speaks of them being in the family of God and the family relationship that he has with them. He says, we came to you and it was not in vain. It wasn't hollow is the word here. It has the idea of hollow or empty. Now remember, he's defending himself against false teachers and the idea is this. He's not, he's not saying that when we came to you, there was no fruit in our ministry. He's not talking about the result of the ministry. He's not saying when we came to you, there was no fruit because no one could say that. It was obvious that the church had been born. It was obvious that their faith was well known, that it had, it had taken such root that there was no need for anybody to testify for them. And so it was very clear that there was fruit. But Paul is talking about his ministry here, and, and, and as he came to them, he says, our coming to you wasn't hollow or empty. In other words, we could say this, when we came to you, we didn't come as a scam. Our coming to you wasn't a scam. Our entrance didn't come that way. 
Now, people could point to that and they would say, well, well yeah, but Paul, you, you, when you came, right? You didn't come like a philosopher. You didn't mimic the philosophers of the day. And in fact, Paul is saying, actually, I'm trying, I'm, that's my point. I, I wasn't trying to be a philosopher. We're reminded of Paul's entrance to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the, or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I, did, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in pervasive, persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So this is Paul's description of how he came to the Corinthians. He says, I, I didn't come to you with great oratory. I didn't come with you with fancy words and philosophies. He says, I, I, wasn't, even I wasn't even afraid to be shown weak, be, uh, being, sh being shown that I am weak, that I wasn't wise. And he says, this is the way I came in Corinth. And we assume that this is the way that Paul came to Thessalonica. And he, and he talks about that later in this chapter, that he didn't come with pervasive speech. And so Paul says, I, I didn't live up to those expectations of a philosopher who came with all of those, with all this grandness of, of argument and oratory. And his opposition is saying, look, he, he came and he, guess what? He just, he's not a philosopher. He, he just got no class. He's got no panaz. He's got no oratory skills. He lacks polish. And so this is the accusation that is being made against Paul. You're not a philosopher. You're not anybody of weight. Look at the way he came. He wasn't a great speaker. He lacks what it takes to be a philosopher. But Paul responds now. Now we look at verse 2 and we see his response. And so we see a, 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 a response to what they say that he, he is. Here's this denial. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated at Philippi, you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So again, he gives us here this first word in, in, in verse 2 is a strong conjunction. But in contrast to what the accusation that's made, in contrast to what they've said about me, he says... In the contrast, the accusation of being hollow and empty. He says, actually, we came in power. He says in verse 4, we actually came preaching the gospel boldly. But it does not come in error. Sorry, verse 2. I'm in the wrong verse. Verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you in the gospel in the midst of of much opposition. 
And so he says, this is what's taking place. He says, actually, far from us being vain, he said, we came boldly. We came in a boldly. And notice this. He says, we, we came amid what? Much opposition. He says in verse 2, we, we had already suffered and been mistreated. And at the end of the, at the verse, amid much opposition. And Paul ties his coming to, bo- to suffering. So Paul says, we, we spoke with boldness, but we spoke in boldness in spite of what? What we suffered. We spoke in boldness in spite of what we suffered. We had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. And so Paul, Paul looks, if we look back at Acts chapter six, 16, Paul had suffered while he was at Philippi. Now the word suffer tends to, it deals with primarily with physical abuse. And Paul's suffering is recorded for us in Acts 16, 23 and 24. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw him into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them secretly. And he, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. And so here is Paul. He is, he is, he is beaten and he is put in jail. He is suffering physically at the hands of those at Philippi. But that wasn't the worst of it. He was mistreated. He was insulted, a reproach. He was ill-treated. Uh, it, it, it expresses insulting, outrageous treatment. Especially treatment which is calculated to publicly insult and o- openly humiliate the victim. Now, we're reminded that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had certain rights under the law, and there were certain punishments that he was not allowed to be, to be given as a Roman citizen. He wasn't allowed to be beaten with rods. And yet Paul is beaten with rods, and if you know anything about beating with rods, that leaves a lot of deep bruising and, and, and beats up your flesh very badly. And so Paul would have been marked up. And he was, remember, when, when, he was, when they were beaten, they were stripped naked in public and then beaten. So you can imagine the gross indignities that Paul and his companions were going through. They were put in like common criminals with, in stocks. They had this public humiliation that was, was taking place, a humiliation that they didn't have to suffer as Roman citizens. And Paul says, you know this, you know this. And he says, amid much opposition. And again, we remember that as Paul came, there was opposition to, to him, opposition to the gospel, opposition to the church as they opposed him. There was an intense struggle. The word here is agonizomai. It has the idea of, a, of struggling. It was used for a, in a, an arena picturing intense struggle between two athletes. And it came to be used of an outward struggle. And he says, there was this struggle that went on, just like two athletes who are wrestling in the ring, trying to gain the top. And he said, it was difficult through effort. And he said, this came among much opposition. And what we're seeing here is this that when it comes to preaching the word of God, 
it actually brings what? Opposition. It brings opposition. It brings, instead of making you popular, instead of making people love you, it actually brings opposition. It's not, it's not a way to popularity. It's actually a way to persecution. People don't like the gospel. But here's what the amazing thing has happened. He says, and you know this because you saw us when we came and you saw how we behaved. But instead of making us quiet, he says, we had boldness in our God to speak the gospel to you. The gospel of God to speak to you the gospel of God. And he says, actually, instead, instead of us becoming quiet, instead of this persecution quieting us down, we actually spoke in boldness. In other words, we spoke even louder. The word boldness has freedom or frankness in speaking uh, or, or confidence of spirit in speaking, literally speaking out every word and conveys the idea of freedom to say all that you have on your mind, thus to speak freely, openly, boldly, fearlessly, without constraint. And Paul said, actually, we came to you and we were under persecution. We had been persecuted. And we came to you, when we came to you, we were persecuted. And instead of being quiet, instead of, instead of pulling our punches, we actually got what? Got bolder. We had absolutely freedom to say anything that was on our mind that we wanted. We didn't start to say, well, you know what? This is a subject maybe we won't touch. This is something that maybe is going to cause a little bit of controversy. So I think we'll just, we'll just rein it in a little bit. He says, no, actually, we had boldness to speak. We just spoke the truth, and we let the chips fall where they may. We gave the gospel. We gave it to them straight. We didn't pull any punches. We just gave it to them. Now, for most people, that doesn't happen, right? For most people, that doesn't happen. For most people, when, it, when persecution comes, they become quiet. So what was their secret? How did, they, how did they do this? How did they actually become bolder in their witness? Well, it says in, the, in that line, we became what? Bold in what? In our God. In our God could be translated by our God. Their boldness was not manufactured in their flesh. It wasn't that these people, they were braver than everybody else and that they just, you know, manned up and went after it. They weren't doing this out of bravado. It was imparted to them. Their holiness was not, their boldness was not self-wrought, but spirit-empowered. Their boldness was not self-confidence, that the world extols, but confidence based solely on their God and their trust that he would sustain them. Paul would write her late in Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That is where their power came from because they believed in God. They believed in his power. They believed that the, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
They believe that my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And they recognize that the power was not in and of themselves, but it was in God. And they were, they, they, their trust was in God as they had their eyes on him. And so they said, we, we speak boldly in our God to speak you to the gospel of God. And so they were empowered and they were empowered by God and the, the Holy Spirit and their trust in him because their focus was on him. So in the response to his criticisms that his ministry was hollow, was a scam, was a hoax. As Paul came to the Thessalonians, he says, you know, you know. And he says, you were there when we came to you. You were there when we entered into you. And you recognize that when we came to you, we already had bruises on our body. You saw the evidence of, of, the, of the rods that we were experienced in Philippi. We didn't come to you looking all new, brand new and spanky. We came to you, demonstrated that we had been through physical trauma. And he says, so when we came to you, you saw that. You already know that we were suffering for what we believe to be true. And he said, when we came to you, we suffered with you as well. You know the conflict that, that we went through. And so Paul said, you think I'm a charlatan? You think I'm a, a philosopher? Not worthy to be a philosopher that you can follow? He says, look at my body. Look at, look at look what's happened to me. My ministry with you didn't lack earnestness. It didn't lack the fact that I was coming to you honestly. It wasn't a sham. And so Paul says, look, look at my body. Look at, look at, you know what it was like when I came to you. You know what I looked like when I came to you. You know the opposition I, I, have, I have faced. Well, again, what is the application to this principle? What's the application to this principle? The bold, the bold proclamation in spite of opposition. Well, again, it's just not for missionary leaders and, and leaders and, and pastors. It's for everyone who spreads the gospel. And we often say, well, how do I know if I'm a genuine believer? How do I know who I really am? And one of the ways to test to see if you are a faithful, if you are a faithful servant of God, is your willingness to suffer for spreading the gospel. It is, it is not in your proclamation and in your statements, but it is what? In your willingness to stand for the truth. Are you willing to suffer for the message that is a mark of a faithful servant of God. That's what a faithful shepherd is. 
will proclaim the truth of the word of God regardless of the cost. And so we too must be those who are willing to pay that price. And we would say this, it has been very easy in our country to be a Christian, right? We've, got, we've, we've had laws that protect our, our freedom of religion. We've had laws that have often gone along with biblical principles and we have felt safe. And so it's been easy to tag along. It's been easy to go to church. It's been easy to make a profession. But the real test is where are you when persecution comes? Where's your fortitude? Where's your willingness to stand in spite of suffering? And so the question is, do you find yourself pulling your punches when it comes to truth? Do you find yourself saying, well, you know what? I'm just not going to go there because it causes trouble. Am I just not going to put that in an email because guess what? The government's listening to me. I'm just not going to put some stuff out there because guess what? It's just going to bring more trouble than it's worth. Do you even find yourself doing it with fellow believers where you're afraid to speak the truth because you don't want blowback, because you don't want someone to get mad at you? Paul says the mark of a faithful servant is actually someone who is willing to speak the truth regardless of the cost, regardless of the suffering. Now, for some of you who are already feeling this, because we're living in a society now that we know is hostile towards us. And for some of us, we're starting to pay the price for this. We're starting to pay the price for this. And for some of us, we're like, oh, no, this is awful. Right? This is terrible. Well, actually, you can take comfort because when you are willing to stand for biblical truth and it costs you, it demonstrates that you are a faithful servant of God. And so far from being a mark of God's dis- a, a, a lack of approval in your life, it's actually a demonstration to you and a grace of God to demonstrate that you are his and that you know you're being faithful to him. And so we are called to give evidence of that by being willing to suffer for the gospel like Paul was. And Paul says, I didn't come to you in vain. I didn't, my coming wasn't in hollow. You saw who I was. I was willing to suffer for what I believed to be true. Guess what? A charlatan and a philosopher would never sit there and do that for you. This is a mark of a genuine work of God as he has empowered me be bold in the proclamation of the gospel to you. Well, that's the first characteristic of, of, a, of a godly shepherd, right? The proclamation, the bold proclamation in spite of opposition. Secondly, a god, godly in his motivation to proclaim. He says, and this is the, the next characteristic here, and we start with a denial. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by the way of deceit. And he says, listen, our, 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 our coming to you 
And he, and he says, our, exec, our exec, exhortation, in other words, when we came to you, he says, we didn't come here, we came here with an exhortation. In other words, we came here with teaching, we came here with truth, but we also came here with the idea of calling you to believe the gospel, to preach the gospel. We appeal to you. The idea is not only did it contain truth our, our speaking to you, but we were appealing you to believe the gospel, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in his finished work on the cross, to recognize that he is the only one through which atonement can be made, to be reconciled and to have peace with God. We came to you and we had, we had a legitimate appeal to you We had a sincere call to you to come and to, and to obey the gospel and come in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, our exhortation didn't come. And now he gives three negatives, three charges of his that are brought by his opponents against him. And he says, I deny these three things. When we came and gave the gospel to you, first of all, we didn't come, he said, and we could say, Rooted in self-delusion. In verse 3, 4, our exhortation does not come from error. From error. We didn't come and lead you astray by somehow wandering from the truth and then leading you with us, believing that we had the truth. It wasn't sourced in error. It wasn't, I didn't have, Paul says, I didn't come and have faulty reasoning. I, did, I didn't get it wrong. It's not that I didn't know the truth and somehow thought I knew the truth and then led you with me. He says, I wasn't deluded and therefore deluded you. He says, it wasn't in error that I came. Error has that idea of, of wandering, of, of wandering from truth and falling into error. And he says, I didn't do that. I wasn't sincere, but sincerely lost and lead you with me is what he's saying. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come in error. Secondly, he says, it's, it, I, I, didn't, I didn't come in impurity. I didn't come with impure motives. This word is, is always used to do with sensual desire. And so there's some debate as to what he's talking about here. It can be anything from a desire for money, a desire for pleasure, even for glory, where people give you accolades. It is also used of sensuality and sexuality, and that certainly was the mark of, of false teachers who would often come into a city and they would, as we, we spoke before, would, would, through the religious experience, get into immorality with their cultic practices, that was the mark of an unbeliever. They were, it says in 2 Peter 2.18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. In other words, they came talking about immorality, saying it was part of worship and, and often taking people in into occultic practices and sexuality. And Paul says, we didn't come this way. We, we didn't come speaking about sensuality and, and trying to, to come in impure motives. We spoke the truth 
out of pure lies. We didn't take disciples after ourselves for these reasons. We didn't come wanting your approval. We didn't come here for your praise. We didn't come here for your money. We didn't come to use you sexually. We came with pure motives. We spoke the truth out of pure lives. And then number three, the number three accusation. We did not come by way of deceit. We did not come way, way, by the way of deceit. This word is used of, of catching fish with bait, right? You throw, in, you throw in a lure, the fish sees it, strikes it, and you hook it. And he says, we, we didn't come that way. We didn't come with tactics. We didn't come with tactics to deceive you. We didn't speak in philosophical terms to turn your mind upside down. We didn't appeal to your emotions and, and get you all worked up to the point where we appealed to your emotions so that you left your mind in the, in the back and started to do things that you wouldn't have done if you had thought it through. We didn't purposely try to deceive you to get you to go where we wanted you to go. We didn't resort to manipulative methods to ensnare converts. That's not what we did. We were open and straightforward in our presentation and our preaching and giving the gospel. We didn't play on your emotions, he says. There were no tricks involved. It was sincere and truthful. So Paul not only denies that he was deluded and wandered from the truth, accidentally led them astray. He, doesn't, he denies impure motives and he denies that he intentionally led them astray, that he had deliberately deceived them and led them astray in an, advant in an effort to take advantage of them. And he says, we didn't do that. That's not how we came. In contrast, now he gives the affirmation in, in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to entrust the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So a faithful shepherd is resolved to speak the truth for no other reason then, Paul says, than for the glory of God. He's not trying to please people. His primary motive then in in Speaking the truth is the glory of God. And again, he starts with another strong conjunction here in verse 4. But in contrast to what they've said, we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Now, it's interesting here. He uses this, this thing just as, and then he moves on to so we. In other words, he says this. He connects his speaking to a condition. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, what? So we speak. So we speak. And so he says, my speaking is predicated on being approved by God. This is the condition by which I, will, I spoke to you. I didn't speak on my own, but I spoke because I was what? Approved by God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he was approved by God? The idea of being approved has the idea of, being, of metal being attested by fire and purified. 
and put to the test to the point where it is discerned to be pure metal and approved. In other words, the idea is, is, is not just that he was put to the test, but that he passed the test and it's clear that he has been approved. And so Paul says, listen, I've been approved, and he says, and I consider myself to be approved because I've been examined, but he says, I've been examined not in the court of public opinion, not by other philosophers, not by the world, not by the intellectuals, not by other philosophers, but I have been approved by God himself. I have stood in the courtroom of God and I have stood in that courtroom alone, and this is where I take my arch marching orders from. This is where I take my approval from, is because I have stood in the courtroom of God and was confirmed by Him. I have been confirmed and examined in the only court that matters, in the court of the righteous God of the Bible. And he says, I, I, I was examined and I was what found faithful. And so their, their speaking then arose in direct proportion to what? To God's approval. And he said, we spoke, How did, why did we speak? Because we had God's approval. We, we understood that God had tested our character, had discerned our heart. And now we speak. He says, not as pleasing men, but who? God. That's who we wanted to please. The, the idea of, of, of the verb to please here means to act in, in a fawning manner, to win favor, to flatter. It has the idea of serving the interest of someone else. And it gets right down to the heart motivation. And he said, our motivation wasn't to what? Please people. It wasn't to please the mob. It was to please God. As one writer said, we're always pleasing someone. We have been created to do that. It's inescapable. We're always pleasing someone. For some, it's pleasing yourself. Paul denied that. For some, it's pleasing others, being fearful of what others think, orchestrating your approach with the things that you say, moderating how you say it, how you couch your words to gain the approval of others. Paul said, I deny that. But there's a third option here. And Paul says, we exist to what? Please God. But God, God makes it clear that those accusations that he was ministering out of error or sensuality or cunningness. None of that was true because he existed for the pleasure and approval of God alone. And he says, no one who exists this way, no one who wants to please God, no one who lives for God alone would ever use these methods in the giving of the gospel. No one would ever stoop to what he has been accused of in verse 3. And then he adds this clause, and he could have stopped, who examines our heart. He points to the fact that our motives in ministry matter. In other words, God is not ambivalent. 
He's not disconnected to our motives as we go out in ministry. He, he is in the process, and the word here is, has the idea of continually in the process of sifting our hearts, examining them. In other words, God is the great one who searches people's hearts. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, it is not, there is not a creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are laid bare to the eyes with whom we have to do. In other words, God is forever searching our motives and our heart and our desires. And so Paul says, this is my life. This is who I live for. This is, this is how I exist, is, is fully to serve God. My motive is to please him. He says, God examines my heart. He's the one who continues to sift and to know whether I am serving him fully. Now, Paul isn't doing this to, for salvation. He's doing this what? He's pleasing God because of salvation. And so Paul, this is, this is his existence. This is the way he lives. all motivated by a service to God. His heart motivation is what? To please God. So that leads us to the question, what is our response to Paul's principle here? How do we respond to the fact that we are to proclaim the gospel for God's glory? Do we have godly motivations when we start to proclaim? Are we the ones who consider that only God is the, we have an audience of one and that when we speak, it is him that we are trying to please? Who controls the content and the manner of your speech? Am I, am I only seeking to please God or, or am I afraid of other people? Am I afraid of other believers, unbelievers? Who am I afraid of? What, what, is, what is it that controls my speech? Am I willing to proclaim the truth and do I do it for God and God alone? Do I do it for his glory? Or is there something in it for me? Am I... Am I or am I, am, am I holding back because I'm, I'm actually not doing it for him, I'm doing it for me? Or I want other people to be pleased with me? So again, like we said earlier, do we withhold the truth because we fear? Do we, do we, do we not proclaim the gospel with boldness, but as soon as suffering comes, do we pull back? Or are we about the glory of God? So the question that we ask, that we close with is, are you committed to the glory of God? Are you committed to proclaiming the truth and to be approved by God? Not approved by men, not to be loved by the world, 
not to have the accolades of the world, but to be approved by God. Paul says, this is what a faithful servant, this is his motivation in ministry. It's not to get rich. It's not to have influence. It's not to be popular. It's not to make money. It's the approval of God. Is that our motive? I trust it is. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you for its clarity. And again, we pray this morning that you would help us to be those who would proclaim the word of God in the midst of suffering, that we would rely on your strengthening to embolden us and that we would not hold back the truth because we fear men. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who would proclaim the truth and the gospel for your glory and that we would, again, be approved by you because you have entrusted with us with the gospel to share it. And so I pray that we would be not man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. Lord, I pray you'd go through before us this week and that we would measure ourselves against your standards and give us the grace to live up to them, I pray in your name. Amen.